This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Master Historian Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Emeritus Professor of History at Exeter University, and today we're discussing a collection which he has edited, Great Battles of All Time, published by Thames and Hudson. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, what was the basis of the choice of the battles? Why, for example, well, include Cressy and Agincourt, but not the Bouvines? I think that's a very good question, and I discussed it in part in a book I wrote called Rethinking Military History, in which I pointed out that any selection of battles involved a process of negotiation. Uh, I had, in fact, suggested uh, some more non-Western battles because I wanted this collection to focus on that, and indeed there are more non-Western battles in this than would have been the norm in other collections and there are other collections I can refer to uh, which are very heavily Western-centric, for example, the one edited by Richard Overy. But I think it's fair to say that the publishers also had a view and you get a certain amount of kickback in terms of what the familiarity is that uh, readers will anticipate. On top of that, there are separate issues which are true of any edited collection um, that the uh, period specialists, and particularly period specialists willing to write in English, are not equally found, um, and that you have to go, you have to work with what is available. So there was a mixture of choice, and I am very pleased with some of the choices, but also a mixture of compromise. So that probably explains, in terms of your latter explanation, about why Kaddish was not included, because obviously you would need someone who is an expert in Egyptian and perhaps indeed Hittite history. Well, you're right. And also, you've got the problem with some battles, as you will know. Um, there is an attempt with each of the battles to produce a battle map. And with some battles, we simply don't have the reliable information. And that is a, mi a major problem. Um, I've um, discussed that in a forthcoming book, The Geographies of War. And, you know, in many battles, even trying to work out the sequencing of what happened is not very easy. The historian Rory Muir, in his excellent study of the Battle of Salamanca in 1812, uh, pointed out how inaccuracies were uh, 
um, as it were, duplicated. And in my book on the Battle of Waterloo, I pointed out that Sibthorn's attempt to question every surviving officer in the early 1830s about what had happened in 1815, and he produced a standard questionnaire, which includes, you know, what time was uh, fire opened on you, uh, what was the unit opposed to you, these sort of mark with a cross where your unit was, this sort of thing, um, actually could produce some quite disparate answers. And that led to uh, um, sort of clashes, as it were, controversies in Wellington's own lifetime over things like what the British Light Cavalry was doing in the last stage of the battle, uh, or which units really stopped the Imperial Guard uh, advance. So I think it's fair to say that the further back in time, it's not that battles are necessarily at all insignificant, um, but it is the case, um, you know, for example, you could think of the major battle in 751, which I don't discuss, in which the Chinese stopped the advance of Muslim uh, Muslim forces, uh, but we just simply don't have any reliable information from other si- either side, and that is a real problem for a lot of battles. Uh, how important was tactics as opposed to morale in battles in the ancient world? Um, well, I think they're both um, significant. I mean, what you actually have, as in all cases, is when you have a clash of troops, uh, particularly in contact battle, um, it is a question of who will persist and accept the strain of battle and accept the losses. You know, people dying next to you or behind you if they've been shot uh, with javelin spears or uh, or arrows are a are a major issue. And why until late in the 4th century AD were the Romans singularly successful in the art of war? Well, they were and they weren't. I mean, as you know, Charles, because we've discussed this in the past, there are failures. I mean, there's obviously the failure of the Teutonberg of Wald, which we discuss in one of these uh, sort of sections, um, AD or CE9. Uh, there is also repeated problems in operating to the east against the Parthians, um, and then after the Parthians against the Sassanid Persians. So, I mean, what I would say is the Romans had a really good uh, multiple um, capability, um, which I think was very effective um, against a variety of opponents. It was particularly good in infantry combat. It was particularly good in siege craft. Um, I think it's fair to say they were less notable as cavalry forces. Um, I think it's also fair to say, and this is not a criticism of them, after they had defeated the Carthaginians and after they had defeated the Egyptian fleet uh, at Actium, um, they didn't really have an enormous amount of naval warfare that they had to encounter. So they they had a variety of uh, of tasks that they were good at, a variety of terrains they were good at, but in each case there were problems when they moved into unexpected or difficult asymmetrical warfare, which again is a modern situation. Uh, Why was the Battle of the Teutonberg Forest uh, so important in world history, as you uh, seem to argue in the book? Well, I think it is important because of its consequences for 
uh, the bulk of Germany staying outside the Roman Empire, and also because what it meant, um, uh, and I think a frontier on the Elbe um, or further east, the sort of achievement of the Carolingians uh, under Charlemagne uh, as a result of his defeat of the Saxons, such a frontier would have provided what one might regard as Romanitas, Roman culture, uh, the Latin world as a greater buffer zone against what we call subsequently the Bavarian, uh, sorry, the, uh, the Bavarian, <laughs> you can tell I'm tired, what we call subsequently the barbarian invasion. Why was the destruction of the Roman field army in uh, the Balkans in 375 AD so important? Well, I think what the Battle of um, Adrianople does um, is create a situation first of a crisis of leadership in the Roman um, Empire. And I think it's quite significant that in the subsequent 30 years, you're to see attempts by um, individuals, uh, individual commanders to take over imperial authority. So I think that's an important point. The political consequences are very significant. I also think it's very important because it actually gives a dynamic to the Gothic advance. I think had the result been different at Adrianople, had it been the equivalent of the Etonian victory over the Magyars at the Lechveld in 955, which is another one of the um, chapters in the book, then I think we could have seen a rather different uh, political outcome, political military outcome. And I think this is important because people tend to argue from inevitabilities, as it were. It's inevitable the Romans um, should have lost um, at Adrianople um, uh, and not so with the Etonians at the Lechveld. I don't think that that is the case. And I mean, a far greater historian than me, Edward Gibbon, in his kind of the Roman Empire, pointed out the counterfactuals that might have led uh, to the advance of another, as it were, barbarian invasion. I don't mean to be pejorative, but that was the thought at the time in the West. Um, the invasion of the forces of Islam uh, that might not have been stopped at Poitiers, which again is another one of the battles we talk about, and instead might have, um, you know, Islam might have triumphed in Western Europe. Now we can discuss that. Maybe we should discuss those counterfactuals in another program. I think it would be very interesting. But the point is that when you're explaining a battle, what you want to do is to contextualize it to explain what happened, but not to make it appear that the outcome is inevitable. Why, for most of the period covering the book, were large armies so difficult to control? And indeed, one almost gets the impression that it was a disadvantage rather than an advantage to have a larger or a significantly larger military force on one side. Well, again, I think that's a fascinating question. I mean, there were some advantages to having a larger military force because you could have a greater frontage and then hope to outmaneuver your opponents, attack them in flank and rear, um, which you see obviously in many, many, um, many battles, which is one of the reasons why in some battles, Cressy in uh, 1346 or First Panapat in 1526, the defenders try and anchor themselves with woods on either side to prevent them being um, outflanked. But you're absolutely right. Uh, there are serious problems in communicating um, um, commands 
command uh, across a battle structure in that period. The only easy way to do it um, is to send uh, couriers, who of course can be intercepted or killed if you're unlucky. Um, and once a battle has started, it is very difficult to control its process. So, and the larger the battle space and the larger the army, this can be even more the case. When did the superiority of cavalry start to wane? Well, um, I would say it very much depends upon uh, what context you're looking at. I mean, I would argue that as late as the early campaigns of World War One, before aircraft become more effective, and remember aircraft were limited in poor weather visibility and also at night, cavalry is still the essential reconnaissance arm, and cavalry still has an important mounted infantry capability um, both then and indeed in wars shortly before that, the Boer War, for example, of 1899 to 1902. Uh, but obviously, if cavalry is advancing on in a concentrated battle space against prepared um, infantry and artillery defences, as at Waterloo in 1815 or Balaclava in 1854, then it has many problems. There is also, I think one could take this to a broader scale, uh, there are always disadvantages with cavalry. You have to have, obviously, the provision of sufficient horses, and they have to be of a sufficient quality, and you generally, in most militaries, pay your cavalrymen more. On the other hand, there are advantages. It's no accident that the range that could be enjoyed by cavalry forces, um, as evinced most famously, but not only by the Mongols under Genghis Khan and his successors, was one that simply could not be matched by infantry. So I think that there are operational advantages for cavalry, which remain even when tactically on the wrong battle space, it has lost its advantages. When did field artillery become a truly effective weapon of war? Oh. <laughs> um, well, again, field artillery can become effective if other, pa if other forces advance into its path and are massed and you are sitting behind entrenchments that will prevent them storming the guns. Um, so there's a whole number of hypotheticals um, so that, you know, for example, at the Battle of Chaldron in 1514, um, the Ottomans are able to use... Um, a sort of the equivalent of a wagon fortress in order to provide defences between which they can use firearms, both uh, handheld and um, artillery, against the attacking Savavid cavalry. Um, what I would point out with artillery is artillery on the battlefield has, as it were, two main functions. Number one function is what you call counter-battery work. In other words, trying to suppress your opponent's artillery so as to reduce its devastating consequences for your own troops and indeed your own artillery. And secondly, the use of artillery against um, attacking um, infantry and or cavalry, for example, by the Americans successfully against British forces at the Battle of New Orleans in uh, 1815. Um, and a lot of that does depend upon the nature of the battlefield. Uh, uh, field artillery has many disadvantages for a long time. I mean, it's not just a slow rate of fire and a relatively unreliable uh, rate of fire other than at um, 
short range um, and of course rifling for artillery doesn't come in essentially till the mid 19th century but it's also that it's very low in maneuverability on the battlefield which means that if you have a battle in which the other side as it were changes their axis of attack or indeed their formation as the prussians did at leuton in 1757 um, you're in disadvantages i mean and the last point to bear in mind is that um it is actually slow moving to bring up a significant amount of field artillery and it leads to delays. And that is, of course, compounded by the weight of iron shot and the amount of ammunition that you have to bring up. So Napoleon famously begins the Battle of Waterloo, 1815, later than he would otherwise have had to do if he wasn't so concerned to put to establish a grand battery with, from which to bombard his opponents. Would the superior British military performance at the Battle of Blenheim be an example of the learning curve thesis? Yes. I mean, at Blenheim in 1704, there are a number of uh, factors to bear in mind. First of all, um, John, First Duke of Marlborough, the British commander, and his Austrian counterpart and ally, Prince Eugen, but particularly Marlborough, directed the flow of the battle well um, moving in his units, his reserves successfully, fixing the French um, and then driving through uh, their centre. He showed very effective coordination of infantry, artillery and cavalry. And of course, combined arms uh, formations always test one's ability in um, in that uh, aspect of deployment, of training, and of doctrine. So you know, Napoleon got it wrong at Waterloo for a whole host of reasons, but one of one one of them was that the combined arms um, scenario just didn't work. I mean, British squares being attacked by French cavalry would have been very vulnerable to um, French artillery, but the the artillery, the French artillery, was masked uh, by the fact that they didn't pull back the cavalry between attacks, or they didn't bring up the uh, the artillery to accompany them and so on and so forth so yes Marlborough shows a learning curve the British are better in the 1700s than they had been in campaigning against the French in the 1690s and there is also a different quality in command the beginning of the 1690s the French had a truly great commander in the Marshal Duc de Luxembourg um, I think it's fair to say that in the 1700s although there have been attempts for example by Claude Sturgill to um, to uh, positively reevaluate some of the French commanders of that period. In his case, uh, Villar, uh, most of them, Tallard, for example, at Blenheim, were not tremendously effective, and the French did suffer. It's interesting that where the French did have a good commander, the Marshal Duc de Berwick, um, in the in the Spanish campaign, they were able to defeat British forces. And again, the British did not have a commander there of the competence um, and drive of Marlborough. Tactically speaking, which would you say was the greater victory, Rosbach or Blenheim? Oh, uh, Blenheim, because uh, Blenheim, Rosbach, uh, a significant amount of it is a surprise. It's, uh, in, in, to a degree, it's an encounter battle. Uh, Blenheim is a really hard pounding battle, and also Blenheim decisively um, ends the French attempt in the War of the Spanish Succession to. Um, dominate the situation in Central Europe, advance towards um, 
Vienna cover their ally Bavaria, where, and that doesn't recur again, French forces don't operate so far east again till 1741, which is 37 years later, um, whereas I think it's fair to say that Rosbach is convenient for Frederick the Great, but actually Leuton is a more important, but later, you know, um, is a more important battle because that helps to... Um, uh, gain a temporary advantage against a much more serious uh, opponent, which are the Austrians. Um, whereas the French are having to engage British forces uh, and British allied German forces, which move into the western part of the empire, western part of Germany from 1758, there is no equivalent distraction to the Austrians or, for that matter, to the Russians. So battles involving the Russians, like Grosskunersdorf, um, in 1759 are much more serious, I would say, than Rosbach. Uh, why was Nelson's victory at Trafalgar so decisive? Um, Nelson's victory at Trafalgar is a victory over a larger French-Spanish fleet. It's the it's not the end of the fighting at sea. Uh, there were there were other uh, battles against French squadrons, but there is no battle that is of that scale. Um, the British, in other words, are in a situation where it is after that accepted very clearly um, that for the French to operate successfully, they have to, as it were, try to dodge uh, British um, fleets. Uh, it also means that there is a significant loss of French warships and even more seriously of French sailors. There is a failure of French morale. Now, Napoleon tries to rebuild a French navy, particularly using the naval dockyards at Antwerp and uh, Venice, and also using his alliance system. So he leans on allies such as, for example, the Danes, in order to uh, provide warships. But he's never able to do uh, to do this successfully, in part because of the uh, capability advantage that the British have both displayed and enjoyed as a result of at Trafalgar. I think that's very very important. It is, you know, a lot of people have commented on Napoleon's success, um, short-term success in the mid-1800s. Uh, what is interesting, and this replicates his failure in 1798 when he invades Egypt, but his failure to look after French naval resources, which leads to the disaster of the Battle of the Nile, what is interesting is he's a much less sensible um, prudent and effective uh, user of French naval resources. Did Bonaparte's tactical skills show a marked decline at the Battle of Leipzig? Uh, yes. I mean, the Battle of Leipzig is a battle which lasts several days uh, and, as it were, brings together a number of different fronts. Now, Napoleon is in a difficult situation. He's outnumbered. He's outgunned. Um, but he doesn't. Ha he is, on the other hand, got the advantage of, as it were, a central position. He does not handle that well. And I think it's fair to say that um, although there are some skills in Napoleon's later uh, campaigning in the early months of 1814, I think it's fair to say that both at Borodino against the Russians in 1812 and at Leipzig in 1813 against the Austro-Prussian Russian army, um, 
uh, or Armies, I should say, he does not show the kind of skill um, that one had seen in the Al-Maltzdalitz campaign. Having argued that, you will know from our previous discussions that I'm a, I support the Owen Connolly line of blundering to glory, the account of the Marengo campaign of 1800, which is that Napoleon did not have and was not some primeval type of military genius, that he often was better at using the unforeseen, as at Marengo, uh, and that many of his victories were relatively close-run things. And I think already in 1807 at Eilau and Friedland, you could see a lack of competence on his part. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Which one would you say was more important uh, in the American Civil War, Gettysburg or Antietam? Um... Well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, what one actually has in the Civil War, which would be a marvellous thing for us to discuss on one of these programmes, is that by the um, late spring, early summer of 1862, it appears to be the case that the Confederacy has lost. They've lost their bigger city, New Orleans. They're under pressure in the Mississippi Valley. They're under pressure in the Peninsula Campaign. And as you know, this turns round. And in order to, as it were, regain not just an operational dynamic, but I think to put pressure on northern public opinion, and in my view, with an eye to the northern, uh, to the midterms in the electoral midterms in the north, uh, Robert E. Lee marches north in '62. I think Antietam would have been a uh, really significant as part of a broader questioning of the effectiveness of uh, northern strategy and might well have helped the Democrats against the Republican government. So I think that's an important battle. I mean, obviously, as you know, Lee is not successful in maintaining his dynamic then, although the Union forces fail to use their um, numerical advantage in order to deliver the verdict which you might have anticipated. Um, in terms of Gettysburg, again, um, you have almost a rerun of this, though obviously there are not elections in 63. The next elections are the 64 presidential elections. Um, I think in Gettysburg, I think Lee is more clearly out fought by his opponent. He finds it harder to maintain control of the flow of the battle. Uh, neither side is able, on the other hand, to inflict uh, what one might term a decisive uh, defeat on the other, which means that you enter 1864 with a lot unclear in the strategic sense. In other words, whilst it looks increasingly apparent that the Confederates are not going to be able to carry the war successfully into the northern states, it also by no means looks clear that the north is going to be able to translate 
its uh, advantage in resources into a battle-winning verdict and sufficient, certainly sufficiently won to ensure that Lincoln wins again the 64 uh, elections. And that's something Lincoln was well concerned about. So I would say that, in a way, the decisive, if we wish to use those terms, uh, clashes, battles in the Civil War, those in 1864. Why was the Battle of Tsushima more important ending the Russo-Japanese War than the Japanese land victories in Manchuria? Um... It was an abrupt demonstration of the failure of the Russian throw to use naval power to, as it were, overcome the problems posed by the distance of Manchuria. Fighting a war at the distance of Manchuria was extremely difficult for them. Um, on the other hand, it's worth bearing in mind that the Japanese in 1904-5, rather like the Prussians in 1870-71, were finding the strain of the war um, that the, as it were, the resource strain, the logistics, the financing, really significant. So for them, it was also advantageous that the uh, the focus shifted to something that could be decided on a on a day. I mean, there are other factors, as you probably know. Japanese military intelligence was stirring up discontent in Russia um, in 1905, just as the Germans had successfully do with the Bolsheviks in 1917. So there's a broader pattern. But the naval the naval uh, defeat, um, as it were, is not only a practical defeat of a large navy that would have definitely hindered um, the geopolitics of Japanese strategy in the Far East. It was also something that could be readily understood by every single world power. Why was the Second Battle of Tenenberg such a perfect victory? Well, it was a perfect victory. We're talking here about the defeat of the Russian forces that had invaded East Prussia in 1914. And it's called the Second Battle of Tannenberg because of an attempt to refer it back to a battle in 1410, with which the links are slightly tenuous. But nevertheless, the Russians are defeated in two major battles at the Masurian Lakes and at uh, Tannenberg. The German forces in East Prussia are able to adopt a central position. They are able to defeat separately the two invading uh, Russian armies, inflicting very heavy casualties and really creating a situation in which it is clear thereafter that the uh, Russians are just simply not up to fighting successfully against the Germans. I mean, it's very interesting that if you look at the major um, uh, Russian offensive in 1916, the Brusilov offensive, uh, it's directed against uh, the Austrians. And I think it's um, an abrupt demonstration for um, the uh, Western allies that they are in a really difficult war because the idea that you could use the Russian steamroller, as it were, to uh, do on the um, Second Reich, that of Wilhelm II, uh, what the Russians had done on Napoleon was clearly uh, just you know, not going to be the case. Would the, war... I mean, the Russians lost... Sorry, the Russians lost about 300,000 men in those two battles. It's, you know, this is quite significant. Granted, that is quite true. Would the war in the East during the Second World War have been strategically different if the Germans had taken Moscow in November 1941, 
There is an argument by some military historians that uh, what was important in the first uh, six months of the campaign in the East was the fact that the Russian army, or I should say the Soviet army, had not been destroyed by the Germans. Yes, I certainly think that the Germans failed to translate tactical uh, adroitness and the advantages of success and some pretty spectacular operational encirclements. They failed to translate those into two things. One, a continued pace of operational success. And it's worth um, bearing in mind that in, in November there are still some encirclements which the Germans use, but they are nowhere near as successful as they had been earlier in the campaign. And secondly, there's the basic flaw in strategy. Um, the, the Soviet regime had not collapsed. Uh, there had not been an attempted coup against Stalin. Uh, the tank production and most of the ministries had been moved uh, further east beyond the range of likely German advance and German air power. And I think it's the case that gaining Moscow would have been an important central position for the Germans, but they would also have been, as it were, vulnerable. They would have been vulnerable to a counterattack. There was no sign that the cohesion of the Soviet military industrial system had collapsed. And what is interesting, partly because of its absolute brutality, and it's worth bearing in mind that the Soviet regime went on murdering uh, its own citizens right through these months, uh, anybody that might conceivably uh, have or be perceived as having a different view, um, uh, let alone lots of people that didn't. Um, and that kind of brutality does seem to have worked quite effectively in this context. On the other hand, there are at least two instances of what are regarded as panic um, in uh, in Moscow. Um, if the German, if the Wehrmacht had, had, let us say, got a force into Moscow, the question then arises, I mean, as with all counterfactuals, would it have been a force that would have faced uh, determined defence in an intractable urban terrain, to wit Stalingrad following year, would it have been a force that would have, that would have been exposed at the end of a, uh, a salient um, and then had been vulnerable to counterattacks, to which I suppose you could say Stalingrad again, the Germans in Stalingrad, or indeed the risk with the British uh, Arnhem Offensive in 1940. So the actual physical gaining control of Stalingrad, sorry, so, so, so the actual physical control, gaining control of Moscow might not have produced the results that was desired. How important was the Ultra Machine to the Allied victory in the Battle of the Atlantic? Um, Ultra, I think, is important, but I think it's mistaken to argue, as has been, you know, I've seen one or two films and television programs that have said this, that it was the decisive factor. There was a whole host of factors that ensured um, the defeat of Germany. Um, the entry of America into the war was important, plus American shipbuilding capability. The development by the British, the Americans and the Canadians 
of effective anti-submarine tactics and doctrine was significant. Knowing that a submarine force is in a certain area does not necessarily ensure that you can accurately target this submarine. I mean, the ocean is enormous, nor does it mean you can necessarily repel submarine attacks. So I think it's, you know, ultra was useful, but I think sometimes too much weight is placed upon it. How unique was the uh, terror offensive in the fact that the side which objectively won the battle came to view uh, its performance as a defeat. I, the, the only example from past history that I can think of is Malplaquet in 1709. Yes, I think that's very interesting. And as with Malplaquet, you're right, you capture there a political you could use the term malaise, or um, uh, in one case on the, the British in 1709, in the second case the Americans in 1968. I suppose on a limited extent the Suez offensive in 1956, in that the Anglo-French forces destroyed the Egyptian air force, got their troops successfully landed, etc., etc., and then discovered that public opinion um, was more sympathetic to an Egyptian dictator. Um, so I think you know you're you're absolutely right in that respect. The North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong were heavily outfought both in 1968 and incidentally also in the so-called Easter or Spring Offensive of 1972. But nevertheless, the idea developed, uh, particularly in the United States, that somehow the Americans had been defeated. Well, neither of these were the equivalent of Dien Bien Phu, the French defeat in 1954. And even Dien Bien Phu uh, left the French still in control of all the major cities, Hanoi, Saigon, Saipan, Da Nang, etc. Um, so I think one has to look here at broader strategic questions, not least impacting into strategy the extent to which there is domestic determination to uh, keep going. And linked to that, of course, there is also the internal debate as to whether this remains a successful or necessary uh, commitment. So. You could argue, for example, that you saw this with the pullback from Afghanistan last year, which was handled very maladroitly. But nevertheless, you could argue in face of other major commitments for the United States, uh, putatively against North Korea and China, and as it turned out, the supply of weaponry to Ukraine, you could argue that the Afghan uh, commitment was a, as it were, bridge too far. Um, and you could argue, I have argued, I've lectured on the strategy of the Vietnam War, I have argued that once you're moving towards a rapprochement with China, then the actual uh, commitment of so much American resource um, to the Vietnam War was unnecessary, not least because, um, uh, and I've also made this point a few years earlier, um, the nationalist and increasingly anti-Western government in Indonesia was toppled by a combination of the Indonesian military and the CIA, and that gave the Americans a, a depth 
um, which meant what actually happened in Vietnam, very unfortunate for the people there, extremely unfortunate, uh, but was less significant strategically than would have been the case if South Vietnam had collapsed in, let us say, 1964. If you wanted people to take one thing away from the book, what would it be? Um, I think that people should consider contingency. I think they need to move away from any sense of technological triumphalism in terms of weaponry. And I think that their study of military history needs to be focused on a world approach, not through some sort of stupid political correctness, but because war is a global phenomenon and to understand it one needs to uh, appreciate the difference in mil military doctrines and military developments on that observation which i agree with entirely i would like to thank you very much professor black for being so kind as to speak with us today this is charles Cotillo. thanks for listening to new books in history a podcast channel on new books network thank you professor thank you very much